0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Paul Listnick, Behind the Curtain. This is my chance on the WGN radio side to often break away from politics and get into the world of entertainment. But today, we're going to stick into the political and social issues world with a new book authored by a woman who spent many years uh, as an alderman in the city of Chicago. Helen Schiller joins me. Her book is Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win, Five Decades of Resistance in Chicago's uptown community. The thing about these virtual backgrounds, Helen, is I can't, when I hold the book up, I can't see it disappear. So I, <laughs> I'll put it up on my shirt, but we'll, the viewers will see it and we'll get oh, them to see it. Yeah. This fabulous, daring <laughs> to struggle, daring to win. So after all your years in public service and a, and a very interesting life, but what led you to decide, I need to write a book? Oh
1: my gosh. I think that um, politics, the world, the uh, everything that was going on in the world. But I, I had thought about it when I was getting ready to leave. There were a lot of people saying, you need to write it, you need to write it. Um, because, you know, I have a unique story and in a unique approach to change and city government. Um, and I thought that there were lessons to be learned there, but it was a story worth telling. I just wasn't ready to tell it right away. So um I took advantage of the pandemic and meant several other circumstances that occurred and wrote
0: the book. So you arrived, you're known for your work in the uptown area and you still live up there, right? In yes. that space. Yeah. So you arrived there in 1972 and, um, you didn't become alder, alderman until 1987. You served until 2011. We talk about the early moments in your life because we actually don't get to your governing governing years for until like page two sixty in the book. So we, I thought I'd open it up and go, in, and then I became an alderman. But no, we get we get almost three hundred pages of the pre stuff, and that obviously made you the person you are and made you want to step in. So what uh, what had you talk about your years as an activist that led you to want to eventually be part of the governing?
1: So, well, actually coming to Chicago and being in the midst of Chicago's reality meant you had to be involved in politics. So um, I came in 1972. I may not have um, become alderman until 1987, but that time in between um, was a clear, clearly led me to that. So I was um, I start the book, actually, with a story about my dad keeping me home during the um, HUAC hearings, the House on Un-American Activities Committee back in their early 1950s um during the mccarthy era and um, he had me stay home when uh for the hearings between when when uh mccarthy went after the army claiming that there was there were just filled with communists everywhere behind every door and um and the army responded they weren't going to take it lying down and um and 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 it really spoke to the beginning of the end of mccarthyism but My dad wanted me at the age of six to uh, experience this so that uh, he could stress to me one thing and one thing primarily, which is you may or may not remember what's happening here on the screen, but I think you'll remember that I took you home from school and had you watch, and I want you to remember that uh, I did that because I want you to be concerned about fascism and be alert be aware that it lingers out there. And if you see it, you should fight it. So that stayed in my mind. And in many ways, I started it there because in many ways, I feel like we're kind of coming full circle. They've been circles forward and backward in my lifetime anyway. Uh, so that, so that the first confrontation I really had with regards to challenging policy was with the war in Vietnam when I was in college. Um, and then with, um, well, several things that led up to it, but, uh, when I was in college, making choices about that, that I knew would affect the rest of my life. Um, and then being engaged in the um, in the boycott that was called by uh, Black students at uh, University of Wisconsin, where I was a student, demanding, um, demanding that there be a Black Studies uh, classes and department at the school, and um, decided that I really needed to organize, that my responsibility was to really uh, work with, organize um, white people, uh, to join the Black led struggle for liberation, if you will. And this was a, you know, this was 60, late 60s. Uh, so I was in Racine, Wisconsin um, after leaving Madison for a few years before being recruited to come and do organizing work in Chicago. Um, as part of what we called the Intercommunal Survival Committee, uh, which was a cadre of white people working under the direction of the Black Panther Party organizing among white people. And, um, and, and, and there were so many things that we had in common. So in many ways, um, we were an extension of the original Rainbow Coalition that was organized Mm A few years earlier, in 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 sixty eight and sixty nine, by Fred Hampton and Chachi Menes and the Young Patriots, but Fred Hampton really had organized that. Um, it was no longer everybody had kind of gone underground or been murdered, as Fred Hampton was, and um, and so this was our working with. Uh, Bobby Rush, who was then the Minister of Defense of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, uh, to, uh, to really basically continue that coalition. And our responsibility was clearly to organize, um, you know, white people to, uh, participate in solving their problems and survival programs and in supporting, um, what we consider to be the Black led struggle for liberation. Challenges a, to make better the world we're living.
0: <laughs> yeah. Was there a consciousness or I don't think the word is randomness, but you end up in Uptown, which is just mm-hmm. so Helen Schiller. Um, did, did, you, did you sort of know where you were ending up, or did you just happen to end up in, in Uptown?
1: No, Uptown had many different people were here. It had an interesting history. There was a large number of, of, of Native Americans who were here, had been uh, coming, had been encouraged to come into urban areas. There were that uh, was the oldest Black community outside of the Black Belt in Chicago. Uh, there was uh, there was a growing um, Latino, especially Puerto Rican population that was moving north. We had many of the uh, the HUD mortgage, low mortgage, and therefore more affordable housing units that had been built in the city. There have been 10,000 of them built in the city in the 60s. 4,000 of those were in Uptown and Lakeview. Um, and people living there were from literally every content in the world. And Most importantly for us, it was the largest concentration of poor white people, certainly in the city and probably in most urban areas in the country. So it was a perfect place for us to be.
0: And in fact, one of the early uh, efforts you got involved in was, uh, you write about this, was the clothing giveaway. I mean, again, very necessary in that area at the time.
1: Yeah, so uh, I was recruited to come to Chicago to be part of the Intercommunal Survival Committee, but specifically to come immediately in July because we were having a Clothing program, and um, I was. I, it turns out I was it. I had a loft full of tons of clothes that I had to find a way to get organized so that we could give them away.
0: Well, also, we're all very familiar with the word desegregation. What's interesting you write about in the book is that this is actually the story of resegregation of Chicago's only racially and economically diverse communities.
1: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was. Book ended for me, um, because we started, a, we did a lawsuit in 1975 charging that the city was engaged in a conspiracy with a private developer, HUD and CHA, to resegregate a, um, I think, a, uh, resegregate an integrated community. And economically and racially, it was a federal lawsuit so that the economic part was thrown out because there's no economic guarantees in the Constitution. Um, but the rest of it was 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 kept and um and we continued that fight for many years and it became part of its um coming to a resolution of it was part of one of my goals when I first became Alderman and it did get resolved while I was Alderman um and and, and, and um represented in large measure or was just a continuation. Or continuation from that, my effort to show that it was possible that you could do development without displacement. And I, one of the major project that I was engaged in doing that with was the Wilson Yard project, which was, um, at Broadway and Wilson in Uptown and created the, what's there now is the target. We moved the Alding. We created 170 units or so of affordable housing and, that there was a group called uh, Fix Wilson Yard and they filed a lawsuit trying to stop it. And essentially during the uh, during their argument um, for a uh, temporary restraining order, which they did not get, um, they argued in court uh, an argument that essentially said uh, that, that I was involved in a conspiracy to keep a racially and economically diverse community. It was very ironic and it seemed to me a good bookend to the beginning and the end of the story.
0: You know, just to give people a sense of where this is, is it fair to say so much of this story seemed to be centered around uh, four venues, the Aragon, the Riviera, the Uptown Theater, the Green Mill, that Lawrence and Broadway area, that's kind of a hub of a lot of this.
1: Well, that's where we start. That was the very first, at the Aragon is the very first major event that we had, which was a rally uh, to, uh, end police brutality and establish community control, which was a very big theme, um, and, and something that most people in Uptown were very concerned with at that time in 1972. And, and clearly was one that resonated in other communities throughout the city. So that was a big rally we held. We gave away 3,000 bags of groceries and Bobby Rush was our keynote speaker. Uh, so we were making a statement early on. That was 1972. Yeah.
0: And it's interesting when people think of, especially now election season and going through things, we 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 think of the voter suppression uh, that goes on and is accused of going on in so many areas of the country. Nobody would have ever thought that Chicago would have been yeah. a place experiencing voter suppression, right? I mean, just go take a poll. And I think you'd say, everybody going, no, not here. But you read your book, Daring to Struggle, and we find out, oh, no, all you got to do is go back to the days of Richard J. Daley and you had voter suppression in this city.
1: Oh, yeah. I think that anyone who lived through the machine days knows that that's true Um, and um, or should know it's true unless they were so close to the machine that they, they unless they had a unique relationship to the machine, which was that they just voted and they agreed with whoever they were voting for. But they weren't engaged in getting other people to vote or whatever, because all of that. Often, in most cases, included a lot of manipulation, but some of it also just included good old-fashioned organizing. We learned a lot from their organizing, but there was a lot of voter suppression, and that continued way past um, up in I mean, that continued for me in our ward with my opposition. Excuse me for every election until I stopped running. Um, there, there would be people that would literally. Um, we just their goal was to make sure it was difficult for some people to vote and largely because they knew that they were going to be my supporters. And um, when when uh, early voting started, I really cheered it on because it meant that anybody could go anywhere in the city and vote and they wouldn't have to be challenged because of who they were or who somebody suspected they were going to vote for, which was a very common thing that happened in my ward, at least in the heart of Uptown for, yeah. for many years, for many years.
0: You know, I remember interviewing Adelaide Stevenson, um, former senator, and he told me the story. This is not a voter suppression thing, but a sort of a vote as we expect you to. And of course, back in those days, you'd go into a voting booth and they had little curtains and stuff, came about halfway down. And you were apparently expected to go into the voting booth. And at that time, you could just hit the Democratic button or the Republican button and vote straight party. And his wife, Nancy, uh, went into one of those booths, apparently didn't come out quick enough. Apparently she was seen sort of moving back and forth a little bit within (laughs) that booth. And he said the next day, he had the building inspector, the roofing yeah. inspector, the plumbing yeah. inspector, all the stuff from the city at his yep. doorstep. So it was no joke. Exactly.
1: Right. That's that's t- totally a come. I've heard that before. Yeah, it's not the first time. The, but the other aspect of this is voter registration. And it used to be much very difficult to vote in Chicago, um, really difficult to vote. Uh there were multiple, um there were several uh uh organizations that worked very hard, like um the League of Women Voters and Project Leap to make some changes. And um and we were very much in sync with that. Um and and over the time, especially the work of Tom Johnson, I think, who became sort of the preeminent um uh Uh, attorney dealing with voter registration issues, Mm -hmm. voting ended up being opened up to almost everyone in a way that really made it more accessible. And I think that that's a story that's really important to be told because without that, we never would have, for instance, been able to elect Harold Washington mayor in 1983.
0: Well, and and, you know, and you just, you just went where I was going to go because I was going to talk about, you know, just before you run for office, which is in 1987, I wanted you to go back to the date, you know, the date, November 10th, 1982, because that was a turning point.
1: So that was the day that Harold Washington announced he was running for mayor of the city of Chicago. Um, I had to tell you that I was I was the week before he ran for Congress for a second term. And I was at polling places on the near west side, which was a very different place than it is today. Um, but where um, I really I was I was standing outside the polling place gathering signatures for his run for mayor and um, was threatened. Constantly. And uh, uh, every 15, 20 minutes, one of the election workers came by to try and intimidate me to get me to move on. I was threatened with all sorts of violence and other stuff. But I wasn't alone. There was always someone watching my back. So we collected our signatures, but there were a lot of people that weren't very happy about it. Yeah. So you
0: you joined city council in 1987, and you, you, you've you always been, I mean, I when I think of you and your years, my mind goes right to fair housing, housing-related issues. You were vice chair of housing, so that makes sense. But talk about your mission and why it is, because you always felt that people who were aldermen were sort of little mini mayors. That those, That's your term. Um, talk about the kind of influence that an alderman, and specifically you, could have in those days versus today. And it seems as though some mayors, like maybe the current one, are trying to take that prerogative away from aldermen.
1: Well, I think that so there's been big discussion about automatic prerogative, Um, and I think that the discussion tends to forget one or miss a really important point, which is that people need to know that they have access. They need to know that they can express their express their perspective. They need to know that they'll be heard even if what you want isn't exactly what you get. Um, that's where the tension is. But if you don't even have access to have that tension, to have somebody hear you and say, well, I'm not so sure, or, yeah, that's a great idea, then you're kind of left flapping in the wind. You have no way to really have any kind of input. And when we say that we're going to – so this whole discussion about taking away all the manic prerogative was, um, it was like throwing the baby out of the bathwater. The issue was – there is an issue where – uh, you have uh, racial discrimination or you have other kinds of corruption that are occurring um, as a result of your of someone's access to whatever it might be, some resources. Um, but that's, that's people acting inappropriately. And in those instances, we need to be able to say that's not appropriate and these are the things we're going to do to stop that. So if somebody um, says, I'm not going to allow any kind of um affordable housing my word because i don't want black people to live here or i don't want poor people to live here or whatever even if they don't say it that's behind it and we have a situation which we had for many years where the only way affordable housing is going to be built is if it's spread throughout the city in small amounts, then you might say in that instance, we're not going to only go by what the alderman says. We're going to look at the bigger picture. We're going to evaluate how it impacts people for real, objectively. Um, Is it really going to do these things that the fear mongers say it's going to do or not? And and what's the best way to make sure that doesn't happen? Because everyone deserves a decent place to live and proceed from there. That would be appropriate to say in that case, we don't want it to be a 100%... um a hundred percent automatic prerogative. Uh, but when you're looking at access of so people being able to say, I need a tree to be torn down and no one's resigning with the city, you want a representative to be able to go to the city department and say, wait a minute why is this not happening? It's been a whole block. We have these problems, blah, blah, blah. Maybe you should do it this way. Maybe you should do it that way and have a conversation and try and solve a problem. But if you're cut off at the knees as an alderman, not able to have those conversations because now someone has said no more automatic prerogative, we're going to let the bureaucracy take care of it. We've got a problem because we know the bureaucracies, if they're not always being sort of pushed along can become very cumbersome and very problematic. So I think all the offices should be bureaucracy busters, should be there and accessible to their constituents. And I think that all the men should really not give up on their ability to be able to, to respond directly to their constituents. I think that's really important.
0: And a lot of the the Resegregation that went on i mean again it's what people remember not depends on how old you are watching us right now or listening but uh, of course it was richard j daly who built many of the projects right from cabrini green to robert taylor holmes and all of that do you give much and people may not remember that but that that's when a lot of that got created do you give credit to his son richard m daly for taking some a lot of that down and undoing what his father did
1: no, I know that this is not popular. I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not impressed. I'm not a fan of the way in which, um, how either the housing was built or in the way it was, um, unbuilt. Yeah. And, um, and, and because to me, the issue always is the core issue isn't the buildings, it's the people. So that housing, much of the housing around, so the early housing that was built, the townhomes, were very livable. You had, you know, all sorts of people that we know really grew up and came out of that. Jackie Taylor grew up, for instance, from yeah, the Black Ensemble Theater, yeah, um, along with many musicians that we know, um, all, all sorts of other um, folks that, we, that that are stars today in their respective areas where their, their, their creative activity was given a chance because they had stability in their community. The way in which... Housing was added there, the way in which it was added in other places like Robert Taylor, where in order to build it, they literally tore down huge blocks of single family homes that might not have been in great condition, um, but could have been fixed up and made more stable. But instead, people who were there were offered the opportunity to move into public housing and told, well, this will be a great chance. And then they built housing with a plan failure, was a terrible architecture, It wasn't going to survive. And it was too many people with very few resources, access to other parts of the city, other kinds of to additional jobs or better education or whatever. So if you don't do things from the perspective of ensuring building and strengthening what's already a stable community or one that has the potential to be that, and instead you just throw people together and then leave them alone, and then don't do anything to maintain their the infrastructure where they lived. I mean, one of the things that happened with HUD, I mean, with, um, CHA and the city and those big high rises was that the city, uh, it, the, the city did not take responsibility for any of the infrastructure inside those complexes. So the sewers, the roads, all of the stuff that the city takes care of outside of the housing authority had to take care of in, in addition and police, in addition to housing, their, their expertise is in housing. That never should have happened. So there were policies that were established by HUD that we stood by. I mean, the city stood by and allowed to occur because I think. From the perspective of one administration after another, the idea was either it was just a way to get, you know, more jobs, to get development, to be able to do these other things that are not the focus of the people who are living there or who need the housing or potentially could live there. And so when we tear it down and throw people to the wind, that's what we're doing, throwing them to the wind. And so I have issues with the way in which all of this stuff was done. And I think it corresponds to, um, Really, this whole notion of doing development without displacement. I mean, we give lip service to creating housing that people can afford to live in. Um, and we give lip service to the need for that to be really a stable environment. So it has to be housing. You don't have to worry about your health and other stuff in, um, but gives you the opportunity then to hold down a job to have a consistent education process for your children, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I got some issues. <laughs>
0: yep, yeah, very insightful comments. And and in a related but unrelated kind of concept, that my mind went to the human rights ordinance when you talked about that. And my point again is, just as people thought there was no voter suppression here, just as people thought that everybody live where you want now, people for a long time think, oh, well, the LGBTQ plus community, but well, everybody's welcome. There's no issues here. You were quite the uh, champion of the human rights ordinance, didn't pass until 19, 19- Eighty-eight, and people may not r- realize. I mean, today, you know, anybody serves on city count, you're gay. Who cares if you're gay? You be what you want. We don't care. Not in 1988. That was a big battle.
1: Yeah, it was a big battle. It, even ju- and then, not only was that a big battle, but ju- uh, there was one battle after another. I mean, when there was that, there was making sure that we had proper funding for um, AIDS programs in the city. I mean, the difference now. Okay, you've AIDS. Okay, that's okay. You're living with AIDS. That's an acceptable notion today. Then you were, you know, you
0: were you were dying with AIDS.
1: You were dying with it and you were somebody nobody wanted to get near. And 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 from a, a public uh, policy point of view, we really had to fight. To be able to put it on the agenda, not as something that we were just going to ignore because they're going to die anyway, but as something we were really going to embrace in terms of finding solutions, creating possibilities for people to be able to actually live with AIDS. And, um, and that was a struggle. That was a real struggle. And then there was, uh, then we had civil unions before, you know, there was, we, we, we were able to in Chicago get, civil unions, um, a variety of people who work for the city as a model. But it was constantly doing all these different things just to be able to allow people to live and let live as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah, I, uh, several, a couple of months ago on the podcast, I interviewed uh, Reverend Steve Peters, who who came to fame because he appeared on the Tammy Faye show with <laughs> her. But even as he tells the story, you know, because she was open, she wasn't prejudiced or bigoted or anything, but it was, no, be remote. Uh, you can keep that microphone that you had to wear yeah, because we won't need worry about taking that back. Man, We, I'm happy yeah. to say I've come a long way on those issues. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we, we started at the beginning of, of Harold Washington's run. Let me just ask a question about a horrible day, November 25th, 1987. Um, you were late for a meeting, and uh, that made yeah. a difference in your life.
1: Yeah. Well, whether I was late or not was a difference. But, yeah, I, um, I was – the day before was my birthday – And Harold had called me up. We had been, um, he, he, we were working on a housing project, a housing development thing in the ward. And, uh, there had been some issues with it. And he called me up the night before and he said, happy birthday. Come to see me tomorrow at 11. Uh, I think I've got everything worked out. So I, um, we're, I was actually working on two different things at the same time, the housing thing, but also lights at Wrigley Field. And I had, uh, I had from all of our conversations in the neighborhood developed, fifteen uh fifteen neighborhood protections that people really wanted. So I was scheduled to talk to Rob Meer, who was Harold, one of Harold's assistants, um uh in um on Friday after the day after Thanksgiving. Um but he but so I'm i am I'm 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 coming in to see him and I'm on the elevator and Rob Meer jumps on and is really worried that I'm going to talk to Harold about the stuff we haven't met about yet. And I'm like, no no everything is fine. But the consequence to that was that I was two minutes late. So I get to the mayor's office at 1102, and I walk into the main place. You walk in, there's always a sergeant in front, go to the sergeant's desk, and he's not there, and it's all very chaotic. And then Dolores Woods, who's Harold's personal secretary, comes running out and grabs the phone, and then I know something is up. Don't know why she came out there to do it. She came in from the inner office. Um, and then I look outside the door, and I see Linda Murray and David Marta, who are People I knew who also I knew were high up in the health department running with the gurney. And I know something's really up now. And they go to the, uh, uh, inner door, the other door, the, the external door to Harold's main office, inner office. And, um, yeah. So I think had I gotten there on time, I might have been sitting in front of him. Um, I really am glad I wasn't. Um, but it was a horrible time. And uh, I'm, I haven't uh, said
0: what it was, but just for people who don't remember the history, he had a heart attack. That, that's when he died.
1: That's correct. And he wasn't declared. It um, he, he wasn't declared for a couple of hours. They took him to Northwestern, but he probably had never, I don't think he ever recovered from collapsing at his desk. So I'm there in the outer office and um, Ernie Bearfield, who's the mayor's chief of staff, comes out from his side and Tells me, uh, we're going to close the door and you can, you should just stay here for a while and we'll figure out what's going on. And just as he closed the door and he starts to walk back and we are just had to his office and he's turned to me to just tell me what he's doing. And all of a sudden, Dick Mell, who is an alderman, part of the original 29 Harold's opposition comes running in, but the door just bursts open. He comes running in, grabs Fairfield and says, is he a dead or is he alive? And um, at which point I kind of just tuned out. I was, yeah, it was too much.
0: How would the city look today if that had not happened and Harold served another couple of terms, if not more?
1: Well, Harold, uh, Harold uh, Washington always said that um, his first priorities was, were two important priorities for him were addressing institutional racism and institutional corruption. And that that was a 20 year struggle, at least that in order to really make change and have it be internalized and systemic, it would take 20 years. So I think that he was very clear about that. I think he was right about it, although I'm not even sure 20 years might have been enough, but he's right about how we have to, things don't happen overnight. And just because you make a law doesn't mean. It changes things. You have to really change a culture. And he knew that that took time and he had done a lot to create the foundation for those changes, um, just in terms of the way he hired his staff, in terms of doing one day, one day's work for one day's pay uh, to really give respect to the people who elevate the value of the work that people did to work for the city. I think in 20 years we would have come a long way.
0: One thing, whether you agree with Harold or not, I don't mean you, when people agreed with him or not, everybody loved the guy. I mean, he yeah. just, he was larger than life. Everybody loved him. I can't think of a mayor we've had since then that have had has had that same emotional attachment with people. And so as we enter a mayoral season, I guess I want to ask you, because a lot of criticism about Mayor Lightfoot, that people don't like her and city council doesn't like her, but how important is that? How important was it for Harold? Did it matter?
1: Um. Boy, that's a loaded question. Um, I think there's a lot of answers to it. Uh, Harold, um, was unique in many ways. He, uh, he really, he loved people and that came through. So I think that's what people are responding to. But he was also very perception, perceptive, not just about people, but about understanding the needs that people had and understanding the relationship of government to that and all different levels of it, both legislative as well as executive. Uh so he was very unique in that regard, but he never forgot where he came from. And he never forgot and he understood very well politics and it intrigued him. He loved politics. We used to argue about it because I hated politics. So <laughs> we have this whole conversation about po- the definition of politician. Um but I think that that uh the real but but what's different about Harold than 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 um than many of our other uh, candidates or people who've been in that position is that he, he, um, he let people, he want, he brought people in. He opened up the door. He wanted the input from other folks It didn't challenge him if it was honest. He didn't welcome uh, he didn't it wasn't like he welcomed the fight that the 29 gave him or people just lying or just saying whatever for political reasons he didn't appreciate that he understood it he was willing to go toe-to-toe with it he was capable of going toe-to-toe of it in a way that I've never seen anyone before he didn't get defensive he might have gotten angry but he held it in Um but I have to tell you that a uh, conversation I had with him after the primary, after the election in um, 1987. After, um, in my first meeting with him, I don't think I wrote about this, but he, he was, um, we got to talking about the election and he was, he, he basically said, uh, my heart really hurt that so many people voted for Verdoliak because that was voting, because it was clearly a racial vote. And that was 40, he received 40% of the vote um and the that was I think that that was very discouraging I mean it was a sign that there was so much work more work that had to be done but then to know that um still there were so many people that were functioning on the basis of race was very difficult for him to really accept without it causing I I think that caused some pain
0: you, you had a very warm relationship with him, a less warm relationship with Richard M. Daly. And, and you, we, we talked about this on my political report show on WGN. People can watch that interview, and it's in the book. I love the, just the details and the stories that are in the book. It makes it so interesting. So I'll skip the story where essentially you and Daly, with your complicated relationship, when everybody was leaving office, he complimented you. And when a reporter asked him how he got you to, to come around to seeing things his way, uh, he said, I didn't. <laughs> I moved to her. That kind of says it all. But there's a story we didn't talk about on WGN. And I'd love to hear it uh, from you here, which is regarding Ed Burke, who's been on city council for 175 years. And when when your former husband, Mark, passed away, can you just briefly tell the story of the fact that Ed Burke wanted to honor him, but there was something he didn't know and you filled him in?
1: So, um, yeah, he died and Ed Burke was very famous for um, presenting uh, resolutions, death resolutions, we call them, um, in what we, call, what's called the, considered the consent calendar. So it's a, something that where everything is just thrown into it as an umbrella. I mean, it's a bat in a basket and passed in an omnibus. Um, and he's, he'll stand up and say, I'm adding all these to, this is what's in the consent calendar. So he came up to me right after Mark died and at, told me he had written one of these and would it, my mind, if he introduced it. And I said, well, sure, but first I have to tell you a story, and then if you still want to introduce it, that'll be fine with <laughs> me. So the story is basically: Mark um had multiple sclerosis, and a couple of years earlier, it had a crisis and had re- developed uh, pneumonia in the lung, and ended up in the ICU. He was in the ICU for 30 days on 100% oxygen. When he came out of the ICU, um, we were we were. There were, all of us were, make, all of his friends were making arrangements. We were all there making arrangements to how to make sure he got his care, blah, 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 because he had a trach and it was, you know, there's right. so many people to do whatever. So we're all there. And Mark, oh, you know, he, he doesn't, he opens his eyes. He doesn't really know where he is. He like looks at me and says, what are you doing here? And then he says, is Burke in jail yet? <laughs> Didn't skip a beat. He had for many years been covering Burke for All Chicago City News, which was a citywide newspaper we had, and was particularly obsessed with um a series of, uh, of resolutions and organizing efforts around utilities and specifically people's gas. And the fact that Burke's law firm had a relationship with people's gas and thought that that was uh, clearly, a conflict of interest, and so and just for the sake the of our and for the
0: sake of our time, because um, we're we're going to only have a few minutes left. But so you tell Burke that story. Yes. If, if I was Ed Burke, I'd think uh, never mind with that resolution.
1: No, I tell him that story. Typical for Ed Burke, his face turns red. He turns around and he introduces it.
0: And, I and think, then you got a note.
1: Yes, I did get a note from him. Um, I, did I write about this in the book? Yeah, or I just. Well,
0: I I'll can, tell you what it said. I can't
1: remember what the note said.
0: <laughs> the note. The note said uh, a note to you, and then it said Mark would have loved the irony of all this.
1: Yes, that's exactly right, and he would
0: have. I'll tell you what's in the book. I've I read it, uh, <laughs> cover to cover. I wrote it, and I don't know, so I need. to, <laughs> to So before we run out of time, a couple of lessons from the book. You said one lesson learned: do no harm, because sometimes an ordinance you pass resolves one problem but causes others. Mm-hmm. Do you find that aldermen these days sort of are thinking in that long term and? broader consequence
1: i think that most of the time elected officials don't but i think that's why it's a good idea to remind i mean I, it's not like they don't want to um well sometimes they don't but it's easier not to so i like to i like to make i'd like to remind us all over and over again do no harm be careful look at the consequences solve a problem from the point of view and the perspective of people most affected and then make sure it doesn't it's not harmful to everybody else
0: you also say some aldermen, not surprisingly, act out of good intentions, but others act out of selfishness. I think if you took a poll of Chicagoans, they might think a lot of them were being selfish. Mm-hmm. What do you find?
1: Uh, well, I've never taken a poll, but, you know, every I don't think it's— but you served I, I there, there for a whether, long time. whether you're talking about aldermen or you're yeah. talking about anyone with any kind of authority, often people act first in their own interest, right?
0: And does that change? Is a new generation changing? You know, we're about to have huge turnover in city council—
1: I I, I think that the notion of fiduciary responsibility is something we don't talk about and is really important. And what that notion is, is that if you're elected or if you're appointed or if you have a responsibility for anything that belongs to somebody else, Whether it's me, you know, or that affects someone else's survival, you have a fiduciary responsibility to them first before yourself individually. So it's important to be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and see how something affects them and to look at any particular thing you're going to do from the broader perspective, not just from your own, but from the perspective and needs that the, that the many have as well as the few and make sure that you're coming up with the best possible solution. But we have a fiduciary responsibility to do that. I think. Huge
0: exodus from city council, just a few moments left, but, uh, does that concern you or, hey, it's time.
1: When I left?
0: No, no, no. Now the, the, the huge exodus of aldermen who are leading city council. Oh,
1: the few, uh, no, it doesn't concern me. I think that it presents real opportunities for the future. I have no idea who's taking these runs. I do think there's some institutional. Uh, knowledge that's being lost but I think some of that was already lost and I think that there's that there ought to be a way to respect institutional knowledge and experience and but look at it from through a lens which informs the future doesn't doesn't define it Um so having all new folks coming in there that's an interesting idea I don't know
0: we'll see. The book is Daring to Struggle, Daring to Win, Five Decades of Resistance in Chicago's Uptown Community. Helen Schiller, congratulations on a fine work. So detailed, fun to read, insightful, lots of issues, lots of things there. Uh, We need a voice like that, and I hope you'll continue uh, to spread the voice. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the book. Thank you.